Today we're continuing a sermon series that we've been doing the last couple weeks on the book of Ephesians. Uh, The series is called The Church, Foundation, and Focus. The book of Ephesians is a six-chapter book that basically, basically breaks into two parts, the first three chapters focusing on the foundation of a biblical church. What does a biblical church believe fundamentally? The last three chapters focusing on what does a church focus on? What is the activity of a biblical church? And we're doing this as a congregation as we start to get back into a normal, I guess, rhythm of worship life and service to one another. We're asking ourselves, what is a biblical church so that we can be a biblical church? Today we're getting into chapter two, so we're still in that foundation section. What does the church fundamentally believe? And we are going to read uh, what I would say is arguably not just the most important section of this book, but arguably the most important section of the entire Bible. Like, if you have one chance to tell somebody what is Christianity about, these 10 verses that we're going to read, they may be the 10 verses you go to. So I'll read them for us, and then we'll study them together. They are Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, excuse me, verses 1 to 10. Paul writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived like them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is God's word. So as we got into this series, we uh, exposed the main theme of the book of Ephesians, which is that we are in Christ. And we said, in Christ means status and purpose. It means status that because I am in Christ, whatever God thinks about Christ, whatever Christ has done, whoever Christ is, that is credited to me. It is as if I have wrapped myself up in Christ. So when God looks at me, all he sees is the perfection and glory of Christ. And that status is mine. It's been given to me freely. There's nothing that can take it away from me. But then in Christ is also a purpose. It is to live out in this world as Christ would live. That Christ manifests himself to this world through those in whom he dwells. And so we've been summarizing this with this this great statement from Martin Luther. We are Christ's with and without the apostrophe. We are Christ's with the apostrophe. We belong to Christ. We are in Christ by status, but we are also Christ's in the plural, right? We are the Christ's that go out into the world to bring this message of the gospel to others. And that really breaks down into the two parts of this book. The first foundation is that we are Christ's. We belong to him. We are in him by status. The second half will then focus on how we are Christ to the world. 
In chapter one of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul gloriously announced to us this reality that we are in Christ, and he also worked out some of the implications of that like we studied last week. What does it mean that you're in Christ? What do you have access to because you are in Christ? The text that he's gonna give us today, these first 10 verses of chapter two, is where he then explains how did you get into Christ? Like how did you get there? Um, it's kind of how we would announce anything that's really great, right? We, we would maybe come, if we had some great surprise for a person that we would love, we would come and just tell them the surprise, right? I'm having a baby. Or, you won the lottery. <laughs> and after that, you'd figure out all the details of the whole story, how everything happened, etc., etc. Kind of Paul is doing the same thing for us. He's announcing the glory. You are in Christ. Believe it. But now let me show you how it happened. And that's why I think this text is so important for us. It shows us the step-by-step process of what got us to be in Christ. I provided the text for you on the notes sheet if you want to follow along there. And we're also going to work through three kind of um, points. They are the three real points of the text. The diagnosis, the deliverance, and the direction that this text gives us. We're going to walk right through the text, word by word, verse by verse, and get these three points. So we're going to start first with the diagnosis section of this text, where Paul is going to show us what was our problem at first. He starts the text by saying, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And this, I think, offends the modern person, that we would be dead in our trespasses and sins. We tend to think that by nature, we maybe have some things wrong. We've made some mistakes. We're not as good as we should have been. But Paul starts this text by leveling the playing field and saying, we were dead. Now, obviously, every one of you in this room is breathing. And if you stop breathing at any time during my sermon, please just let us know somehow. Wave your arms and we'll get you. But I'm going to assume for the rest of the service, none of you are physically dead. But what Paul says is that by nature, every one of you was spiritually dead. So what does he mean by that? Well, what does it mean to be dead? It means to have a problem that you cannot solve and you're completely unaware of it, right? A dead person cannot get up off the gurney and get out of the morgue themselves and they have no awareness of the problem. They are dead. So when the Apostle Paul starts by saying we were dead, our fundamental problem he is saying is that We had no spiritual activity. We had a problem that we could not solve, and we are so dead in this inactivity, in this spiritual blindness, that we can't even recognize how deep the problem goes. He says we were dead because of our transgressions and sins. Uh, Transgressions and sins would just basically be uh, transgressions, the, the things that we have done against God's law that we did not know were against God's law. And then sins would be the things that we do against God's law. We rebel against him knowingly. We know what God's law is and we still choose to go the opposite way. He says the sign of our deadness is that we constantly, even when we don't know, sin against God. Our default setting by nature is that we rebel against God in the things that we know we are doing and the things that we don't even know we are doing. And he shows us how this happens. He says, you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Maybe you've had this experience. You look back, maybe a decade, two, three, four in your life, and you think about the things that you used to say or the things you used to do, and you think to yourself, how did I ever do that? I think back to my high school years, I'm about 15 years out of high school now, and 
I think about the things that my friends and I used to say and to do, and those things would be so offensive today. So offensive. I'm glad none of you knew me in high school. But I think what every one of us would say as we think back to those years is probably, more than likely, that's just the way it was. That's just the way people talked about women. That's just the way people talked about minorities. That's just the way people talked. They did these things. This was just the way it was. That doesn't mean it's any less offensive, but it was just part of our culture. The Apostle Paul is trying to get us to understand that the way it was is also happening right now. When I was in college and in seminary, my family lived in Southern California, and so one of the things I loved to do was go out surfing on the ocean. But when you're surfing on the ocean, you have to keep checking back towards the shore because the current of the ocean will actually start to drift you down the coastline so you're away from wherever your stuff is that you left on the beach. And you never notice it because you're so focused on what you're doing and you're trying to catch a wave. The Apostle Paul says that happens to all of us every day. There is a way that things are right now. And by nature, we are blind to it. We are dead to it because it just carries us along like a current in the water. You look back on maybe yourself from a couple decades ago or your grandparents or great-grandparents, the things they thought, the things they said, the things they did. Our grandkids, our great-grandkids are going to say the same thing about us. They're going to say, how did they believe that? How could they say that? We just don't realize it because it's happening all around us. The Apostle Paul says this is the way of the world, the natural way that people just act when, frankly, they're not thinking about it. When the next thing that pops up on Twitter, the next program that shows up on TV, the next thing they watch on their phone tells them to believe or to act or to think a certain way, they just go along with it because that's just the way things are. Paul says this is spiritual deadness, which again offends us a little bit. Because I, I think if we were to just ask, like, who are the people who are spiritually dead? We would probably put a list together of all the worst people that you know, right? The terrible dictators, the mass murderers, the corrupt politicians, whoever we would pick. We put those people on the spiritually dead list. But the Apostle Paul actually levels us all and says, the ones who are spiritually dead, they are the ones who follow the way of the world. They are the ones who continue to wake up every morning, go to work, pay their taxes, but they follow the ways of this world. And how often do we do that? Like if we would look at our lives and evaluate ourselves, how often do we spend our money exactly the same way that the world does? Saving for the same things the world saves for, spending on the same things the world spends on. If we looked at our schedule, how do we spend our time? Do we spend it often like the rest of the world does, prioritizing the same things in our schedule, making sure we have enough time for the same things? How many of us think of our family, our children, our marriages, the same way the world thinks of those things? How many of us think about the things that we consume the same way that the world thinks of them? This is what I need. This is what I have to have. How many of us think about politics the same way the world thinks about those things? Right and wrong, black and white, left and right. So many of us do. I do. It's so easy to follow the way of this world because that current is constantly flowing and pushing us down the coast. The Apostle Paul says this is spiritual deadness and every one of us was in it. 
Maybe to help you see this a little bit better, I think we just need to examine for a moment that, that the moment that we are in, not just in time as compared to maybe our grandparents or great-grandparents, but our culture too, has these things that we just assume are true. For example, if we were to compare ourselves as Canadians to our neighbors south of the border, right, they would say about us, well, you guys are so collectivistic. You don't care about your individual rights. You just care about making everybody happy and fitting into the mold. We stand up for ourselves. We stand up for our rights. How can you Canadians just go with whatever you're told to, to do? And yet we would say, right? We would say, well, because we care about each other. And you Americans, you guys, you guys care only about your rights and you're so selfish. And I'm not saying one is better or worse than the other, but I'm saying you realize it's just naturally how our cultures work. It's not that all the people who are collectivistic decided to move north and all the people who are individualistic decided to move south. They grew up in the cultures that they grew up in. Or we can think about something that's really important to talk about right now, which is the use of guns in our society. Again, south of the border, we know there are way more guns per capita than there are up here. And we would look at them and say, that's why you have so much violence, right? But they would look at us and say, well, what if something really bad happened in your country and you couldn't defend yourself? And again, neither one is necessarily right or wrong, and we could have a conversation about that, but it's the culture. It's how the world is. And we just assume this stuff. We don't ask why. My kids, especially Irene, the older of my two, is in the why stage. You, have, you, have, you who have had kids, you know this stage. No matter what daddy says, the answer to it is, why? It's gotten worse, though, because Zoe, who just does whatever her older sister does, also has now just parroted why, even though she doesn't really know what she's asking a lot of the time. There's a lot of whys in my house, um, which, of course, can get annoying after a while. But, but isn't it sad that we don't do that as adults? We just assume. We don't ask why. And when somebody gives us an answer to our why, we don't keep asking why until we finally get to the place where someone says, well, that's just the way it is. What if we did that? Whatever your question is, whatever the issue is, what if you would ask why, 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 until you got to this is just the way it is? If you did, you would find just as this is just the way it is is actually a religious assumption. And that's exactly what Paul's trying to get at with us. He says, this spiritual deadness, this going with the way of the world, that's following the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He's talking about Satan. And what Satan wants more than anything else is for us to worship anything besides God. Satan wants us to live a life of assigning worth, which is really what worship means, assigning worth to anything but God. And how quickly do we do it? We follow the ways of this world. We believe in the things that are just untold assumptions rather than examining those things and saying, do they line up with Scripture? We have to have this assumption, right? He says he's the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Ruler means he's in charge. Like Satan rules here. Now, is God over all things? Of course. But Satan rules here. And therefore, we should assume, have the stance regularly, default setting that we should, we should expect people to be lying to us, to be trying to pull us away from Jesus. That should be our default setting. But again, how quickly our spiritual deadness catches up with us and continues to push us down the path of believing whatever we're told, doing whatever we're told, saying whatever we're told to say. The way of the world. 
And it's every one of us, isn't it? We look at our life and we realize how far we have fallen, how quickly we are manipulated, how quickly we believe lies. And what should be the the very next thing that God says is that God totally wanted to destroy us, right? It should have been, we were dead in our transgressions and sins, in the way we used to act as we followed the ways of the world and followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air, and God destroyed us, and God sent us to hell, and God punished us, and God chased us down and made sure we were held accountable for all the things that we did. But that's not what the text says. It says, even though we were by nature deserving of wrath, the very next words that that the text says are, but God. Not and God, not then God, but God. It should have been and God chased them down, then God punished them for their sins. Brothers and sisters, the text says, but God. Because of his great mercy, his great love for us, says he made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. You know what I think is interesting about this this statement is the Apostle Paul talks nothing about the forgiveness of sins here. He started there. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. But when when he gives us the deliverance from the diagnosis, he doesn't say your sins were forgiven. He says you were made alive. And this is so subtle, but I think many Christians miss this. We talk a lot about the forgiveness of sins, and rightly so, but the forgiveness of sins is not ultimately the good news. It's not ultimately the gospel. It is the mechanism by which we receive the gospel. Think about it like this. If I said, I just bought for you a brand new mansion, here are the keys, and you took the keys, what would you do with those keys? I'm sure you would take them back to your old dumpy place, put them on the wall, and look at them for the next couple years of your life, right? No, you would take the keys and go unlock the front door of that beautiful mansion that I just gave you and you would live in it. Forgiveness of sins is the key. It's so necessary. You can't get in without it. And Christ has given it to you by taking your sin on himself, dying on the cross with it, and then crediting you his righteousness. But it was for a purpose, to make you alive, to bring you to God. Too often, I think we see the gospel as medicine from a doctor. Like when I have a problem, physically I go to the doctor and I tell the doctor the problem and the doctor either gives me some sort of physio or some drug to take so that I can go back to my normal life, the things I used to do. And too often we think about Christianity this way. I've done some messed up things and I need to get forgiven for those things so I can go back to doing my life the old way. But that's not the gospel, friends. The gospel is that you were dead and you have been made alive. And yes, the forgiveness of sins was necessary, but the gospel is you have been made alive in Christ. If you're dead, can you go back to your old life? No, you don't have a life, you're dead. But Christ has made you alive, which means you have a completely new life, a completely new status. Everything about you has changed fundamentally. We're not just getting a little bit better. We're not taking a couple steps down the pathway. We are completely redone, completely reborn from death to life. That's the gospel. God gave this to us even when we were dead. 
Not after we had cleaned up our life a little bit, not after we had gotten ourselves put back together when we were dead. When we were blindly following the ways of this world, when we were worshiping everything but God, God decided to make us alive. He says it's by grace you have been saved. Grace is God's undeserved love. The way he treats people who have not treated him well. And you wouldn't expect that, right? You would never think this up. You would maybe think up a God who would give you good things when you did good things for him. But not this God. No, this God has mercy on the people who do not deserve to have mercy. He goes down to the bottom and finds those who have messed up and he brings them back to life. Do you remember the story in the Bible where God took the really good person and elevated him to a position of glory and authority and power? Me either. It's not in there. The story of the Bible, fundamentally, story after story, is God takes messed up people and saves them. When Abraham, the father of the faith, gives his wife away in order to protect his own life, God still makes a nation through him. When Jacob spends seven years trying to manipulate his uncle in order to get a woman who he doesn't actually love, he just loves the idea of this woman, God still makes him the nation of Israel. When Jonah runs from God, God tracks him down and gloriously defeats him and uses him for his purpose. And you could go story after story through the Bible and find out that this is the main message. God takes broken, sinful, corrupt, living by the ways of the world people and saves them. It is by grace you have been saved. And that completely changes the way we see life, right? It's not just that I I got some insurance, I just fixed a couple things. It's that my fundamental reality has changed. I'm in Christ by status and no one can take that from me. But it gets better. Look at these next words. He says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Like by God's view of history, we have already died and come back to life. You're fearing your death. God's not fearing your death because your death already happened in Jesus. The moment you breathe your last will just be a doorway into eternal life. So much guaranteed to you that God already sees you in Christ, seated at the right hand of God. Where is Christ? In heaven. Are you in Christ? Then so are you. And it's so powerful, right, that he repeats this name, Christ. He says we're raised up with Christ, seated with Christ, in Christ. Like, do you see who is the focus of this? It's Jesus. And how quickly we focus on our own life and what we're doing and what we're accomplishing rather than seeing ourselves fundamentally the way Jesus sees us. In him. Who you are has nothing to do with you. And that is glorious good news. Because when I look at my life, even though I have been made alive in Christ, I continue to live in a way that is fundamentally messed up. And if God would judge me by the way that I act, the things that I say, the emotions that I feel, the way I treat other people, even today, I'd have no chance. But who I truly am fundamentally has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with Jesus' obedience on my behalf. And so feel free, brothers and sisters. You're freely forgiven. You are freely loved. And it is guaranteed as much as Christ is in heaven. You're seated there with him. 
So I think this brings up now two questions. Right? If that is true, that I was spiritually dead, but then I've been made alive with Christ and raised with him and seated with him, that sounds really great. And I love that idea, that I can walk out of this door completely free of my guilt and my shame and the obligation to be something in this world. But how do I know? How do I know that I'm in Christ? It sounds really good, but how do I know? The Apostle Paul is thankful that you asked because he wrote down the answer for you. In verses 8 and 9, he says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. He says, This grace that has saved you is given to you through faith. It is the pipeline that delivers that grace to you. But guess what? That faith is not your work. Your ability to believe this, not your work. In the same way that you can't ask a dead person to believe that they are alive, you actually have to make them alive, and it's none of their doing. The same is true for you. If you believe this right now, if you hear these words and you're saying, I want that, it's yours. You believe it. And that is the gift of God, which means that it doesn't depend on you again. Not just the grace that's been given to forgive your sins, but the ability to believe it has been given to you by God again. This fundamentally has nothing to do with you. You're free. And none of this is by works, so that no one can boast. I can't look at you and say, well, you've only been a Christian for this long, or you haven't fixed this part of your Christian life like I have. I can't do that because this is all a gift. Who I am is a gift. To be seen in Christ is a gift. To live out in Christ is a gift. So now the the next question I think that comes from this is, Okay, so if I am seated with Christ in the heavenly realms and I am in Christ and the ways of this world are so messed up and I keep falling back into them, then why don't I just go to heaven to be with Christ? Like, why am I still here? Well, Paul's glad you asked that too. He gives it to us in the very last verse of this text. He says, we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. All of this, this making alive business, this giving you a status that cannot be touched, the freedom from everything that plagues you, it's been given to you so that you can do good works. You don't do the good works in order to get the status. The status is given to you, but that status frees you to do good works. You have everything you need in Christ. And so everything that you have, you can freely give to others. And what I think we inevitably do with this then is we try to make this so big and grandiose, but the Apostle Paul does not. Like we think like if that's the thing that God did for me, like, like I who was following the ways of this world and worshiping anything but God, God came down and died for me so that I could be alive in him and be with God again. Shouldn't I do just something massive and amazing and powerful for God? God's answer is no. God has prepared in advance good works for you to do which means your normal, average, middle to upper middle class life is exactly where God wants you. The mundane things that God has put right in front of you, that's what God wants you to do. Do you have kids? Love your kids. Be in their lives. Be patient, be compassionate with them. Be thoughtful about parenting. Are you married? Love your spouse. Stay with him, stay with her. Sacrifice for them. You have a job? Work at it as if God was your boss, not the guy you work for. 
All the little things that God has put right in front of us, that's what God called us to be and to do. And if we fundamentally realize that Christ is, is manifested in all of us, in our unique situations, our unique gifts, our unique opportunities, then we'll see those mundane things as exactly where Christ wants us. So can, can I summarize this just a little bit? Because I think this is so powerful. You're so free. Like, I, I don't know if I can say it in any way that, that gets it across to you better, but like everything in life tells you you have to be something, Right? You have to be successful enough. You have to be powerful enough. You have to be rich enough. You have to be skinny enough. You need to be attractive enough. You need to have people like you. And if you're not feeling that pressure right now, you're not living in the same world as me, I think. Every one of us feels that, and Christ says, you're free from that. You're free because the God of the universe says, you are enough in Christ. You are loved in Christ. You are beautiful in Christ. You are forgiven in Christ. And... Now as you go out into this world to do the good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do, know that you don't even have to find them. God's just going to give them to you. And he's going to work in you to accomplish them. This is one-way love from God. This is God's work down to us, not our work to God. And we just simply receive. So let me wrap up with this. You notice on your note sheet, um, that I organized the text in a certain way. Uh, That's because this text is a chiasm. A chiasm is a Hebrew uh, literary technique where the author will put the most important, most central piece of whatever he's saying right in the very middle of the text. Think of it like an X. A chi chi in Greek is is an X-shaped letter. He says it's going to work all the way into this middle point and then work out, and both sides are going to mirror each other. As you look at this text, I even color-coded it for you. You see that, right? that your life is fundamentally changed by that thing that is right in the middle, that short little phrase, it is by grace you have been saved. And because you have been saved by grace, you have been made alive, and you no longer follow your own ways, but you follow what Christ has prepared for you in advance to do. Because God is rich in mercy and gave you the riches of his glorious inheritance in Christ. And you can see all those other things on the notes sheet. But I want you to walk away with this. This doesn't depend on you. That's different than anything else you'll hear from any other person, any other worldview, any other religion. It has all been done for you, and glory in that. That'll set you free. Let's thank God for that in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gospel, the good news that by the forgiveness of sins, you have brought us back to yourself. Lead us to enjoy that presence to just glory in being with you. To know that the things that pressure us to be and to do and to say the right things in this world, they have no hold on us anymore. That we're in Christ. And that makes us both a child of you and a hand, a foot, a mouth to accomplish your work in the world. I pray that even though my words are insufficient, your Holy Spirit would come and take these words and invigorate the hearts of the people who have heard these words today. That we would be a church that builds its foundation fundamentally on this good news. I ask that all in your name. Amen.